It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. Joining me today is a man whose resume itself could take up the entire length of the podcast. He's a 2005 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee. He's a one-time ABA champion with the 1975 Kentucky Colonels, a legendary team. He's a two-time NBA Coach of the Year. He spent 33 years coaching professionally. But it doesn't just stop there because he's also been nominated for two sports Emmys, and he's the 2000 Kurt Gowdy Media Award winner. He is, of course, Mr. Hubie Brown. Hubie, thanks so much for joining me today. Always a pleasure. So I want to start really at at the beginning. Your basketball roots start in New Jersey, where you were raised in a real blue-collar family. And then you left Jersey to end up playing your college ball at Niagara in upstate New York with a pretty remarkable Niagara team. Um, Can you talk about what about those years sticks out to you as being the most formative in creating the Hubie Brown that the world would eventually know? Well, I grew up in Elizabeth. I, I was born in Pennsylvania in Hazleton. We moved to Elizabeth, New Jersey when I was three. Now, that's where it all was formed. Uh, Elizabeth had seven high schools. I played at St. Mary's High School in Elizabeth, uh, played football, basketball, baseball. And uh, we had a great deal of success in every sport. And then also American Legion Baseball, the first team we ever had, we got to the state final. Uh, lost to Trenton, one nothing, two one. But they went on to win the national championship. So the formative years of inner working with all of the guys at the different high schools. There were 150,000 people. Uh, it all started there. Uh, but the two people who uh, gave me the inspiration, the drive, and the urge to try always for consistency and in excellence, first my father and then my high school coach, Al Ababo, who was a legend in himself doing the boy you man defense throughout the whole country. So for me, it always will go back to my roots, and I never want to ever say that I left the neighborhood. So every summer we do a major thing in Elizabeth for all of the guys who played in the 40s, 50s and 60s, just basketball. And the other day we had 110 guys. So uh, it's, uh, it's part of what I'm all about. There's really something about those uh, about those neighborhoods in, in Jersey and on Long Island in 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 those in that era where where guys really really look out and still look out for each other, isn't there? What what was it about that time uh, in that region that you think contributed to that sort of loyalty? Where, like you said, you are still meeting and 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 taking care of one another. Was it something about the era? Was it something about uh, about the sport, the, the way that teams were constructed? Well, it, it always comes down to hanging out on the corner. Yeah. Uh, the corners uh, in our neighborhood area were very important. And then also from the corners, you go to the playgrounds. And the playground, the New York Avenue playground in Elizabeth was big. Uh, and I'm, uh, Because I, I ran that playground when I was in college. I, uh, every summer I would run the playground. Well, we had games there every single night, full court. Uh, guys would come from all over Elizabeth, uh, intermingle on teams, and then also 
we had um, at, at that area there, my high school coach, Al Abalo, at St. Mary's, won the Catholic Perkeo High School State Championship, you know, seven out of ten years. So oh. that also had a bearing because the majority of the players all came from that playground. Right, right. So whether you went to public school, whether you went to a prep school, whether you went to a Catholic school, you know, you always played together in the summers. And back then, uh, you have to always remember that uh, we, we played football, basketball, and baseball. Back in the old days, there was none of this just staying with one sport. We all played many sports, so you would intermingle that way also. Right. Now, following Niagara, you spent some time in the Army, um, as well as playing some professional ball um, in the Eastern Professional Basketball League. I'm wondering, is this the point that Hubie Brown, the coach, starts to starts to develop? Or had that always been in the back of your mind, that 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 there was something else that, that you could do besides just the on-court stuff? Well, when I, when I graduated from college, I, I was going to sign a baseball contract, but my left eye, uh, a serious injury back when I was uh, in grammar school, got worse and worse, and it naturally cut. Because if you grew up in the 40s, you were a baseball guy first. I don't care what anybody, everybody played baseball. Uh, the Yankees, Dodgers, and Giants, they all had 25 minor league teams, and that was the goal of every kid that played. The other, We played the other sports just to fill out the year. <laughs> now, when I was at uh, Niagara, I was going to sign, and back then there was no draft, so I had a couple of teams that were interested in me, and uh, when my eye went totally bad, I was going to be drafted in the Army within a year. So I got out in 55. I wasn't going to be drafted until August of 56. So uh, one of the priests at Niagara, his high school needed a coach. In St. Mary's High School, Little Falls, New York. It was a small Catholic school, town of about 10,000 people. And I went there and I coached the basketball, baseball teams. And then I was drafted. Now, when I went into the service, I was very fortunate to get sent to the Presidio in San Francisco, which was 6th Army headquarters. And the basketball team was outstanding. We lost the All-Army Championship in overtime to Fort Dix. Uh, and the tournament was played at Fort Monmouth, which was outstanding. Well, off of that team, six guys became college coaches. And being around them all the time, I knew I really enjoyed uh, coaching at the high school level. But I needed a teacher certificate. And then also, uh, when I was getting out after two years, I played basketball there, baseball there, and then also volleyball. So uh, getting out of the service, I went back to Niagara University for a year and worked and received a teacher's credential for business subjects, uh, a master's in education, and a minor in guidance. And that pivoted me into being becoming a high school coach, where I coached five years at Cranford, New Jersey, and another three years at Fairlawn, New Jersey. So that, that's how it all happened. Uh, and I, I never regretted one minute 
because it's always, uh, I've always thought that our entire family life has always been about teaching, whether it was at the high school level, college level, or at the professional level, and then with the clinics around the world. So um, I just happened to fall into it, and who would have thought, because as a senior in high school, I thought I was going to be a baseball player. <laughs> well, it's it's remarkable too, Hubie, how many of these stories revolve around around service and loyalty, which is why in 1972, it doesn't surprise me that one of your Niagara teammates, Larry Costello, gives a call to you. He's then the head coach of the Bucks, and and he uh, hires you to be his assistant in the NBA, which was your taste, uh, your first taste of professional basketball coaching. Do you recall that phone call or that moment when when your former teammate reaches out to you and offers you that? I was an assistant coach at Duke for Bucky Waters, and it was my daughter's confirmation. So my mom and dad flew down to Durham, North Carolina, and we were having dinner. Uh, the uh, the uh, church, the services, and everything were already finished. And I received a phone call from Larry. Well, Larry Costello, uh, when we were at Niagara, uh, we played in three NITs, which was the major tournaments, and then the three holiday festivals in New York. So we had a great team. We'll offer that team. Larry was a junior. I was a sophomore. Uh, that was our best team. Uh, and he was an All-American. Eddie Fleming was an All-American the next two years. Uh, Larry was an All-American for two. Charlie Hoxie on that team became the starting center for the Harlem Globetrotters with Goose Tatum and Marcus Haynes. And then also Bo Ryans played in the league also with Kansas City. And you say, what's the big deal about that? Well, there were only eight teams in the NBA at that time and 10, 10 players on the team. So, Costello and I roomed together in basketball and in baseball. So, when he made that call, I was flabbergasted. He asked me if I would come up and watch on Friday night the Milwaukee Bucks with Dream Matt Bill Jabbar, Oscar Robertson, Bobby Damage, Lisa. They were going to play Friday night, Kansas City. And then Saturday night, the New York Knicks. So I fly up to Milwaukee. I watch it. So we go out to dinner after the game. He said, um, what do you think? I said, well, I said, it's, it, it's uh, definitely a different pace than you have in college. And the talent level is incredible. Plus, Kareem's going to win his MVP again. And, um, and Oscar is at the end, but still one of the great players of all time. I, I said, well, I thought I'm overwhelmed. I said, but why am I here? So he offers me the job. <laughs> and um, I, I'll never forget it. Um, I, I was floored. So naturally, coming in and coming in with the team at that level in 73 and 74, we play and lose uh, the, the championship in game seven to... Boston in uh, 74, but Kareem wins three MVPs in his first three out of four years in the league. And then the other year, he was second to Cousins. I mean, to Collins, Dave Collins. Well, for me, that was my 
doctorate's degree yeah. in basketball because of the work ethic, the incredible athletic ability of this team for two years, and then to see the submerging of the of the athletic IQ. The Oscar Robinson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were treated just like the 11th and 12th players on the team. But to see how hard they worked, their practice sessions, and then the playbook with all of the plays. Now, Larry Costello was a genius. When I was at Niagara, the highest academic honor you can win at Niagara University is the Niagara Medal. And that's for academics. Larry Costello won that academic award in 1954. Hmm. So he, he was out there and at a different level in coaching. So not only did he give me a break to open a door for me, but he also gave me the, ed- the education and how to mix and conform my uh, personality and teaching within that layer. And that opened up the doors for me to go to other places, as you know. And uh, so I, uh, for my entire life, I'm totally grateful to Larry and his family because they treated our family so well when we made the move to Milwaukee. Well, it's remarkable, Hubie, because you talk about that 74 team uh, with the Bucks and Kareem and Oscar. And then the next year, you get the chance to apply that doctorate in basketball with the Kentucky Colonels, where you put together uh, one of the most legendary rosters in all of professional basketball history with Artis and Dampier and Issel. And you put together one of the remarkable runs in ABA history, bar none. Can you talk to me about the way that that team was a direct reflection of, of, of well, I'll use your term, of that, that basketball PhD? Well, that was the greatest team that I ever coached. Now, my teams in Atlanta and Memphis were young teams, like the youngest in the league, and they, they made not only the playoffs, but they did a lot of great things. The New York team was great for two years, before we had all the injuries. But that team, in the ABA back then, we only had 10 players on a team. We had four new players and two new coaches, Stan Allback and myself. And that year, the year before, the New York Mets with Dr. J, they won the championship. We put together a great season. We tied them at the end of the year we play a playoff game, we win the playoff game, and then we go through the playoffs, you know, 4-1-4-1-4-1, because back then it was only three rounds. Now, that team, you mentioned three great players. Dan Issel and, and Louis Dampier both played at the University of Kentucky, and, and then Artis Gilmore played at Jacksonville. Now, all three of them got into the Hall of Fame. Now, not only were they great players, but they were great people. And our 10-man team, our first unit could score and defend and was really an outstanding unit. But our second unit was 
five guys that could really run, jump, trap, and fast break, and they played a different type of a game. So all 10 guys played every quarter, and we won the championship. And unfortunately, at the end of three days, our management sold their missile to a team that never even opened its doors, the Baltimore Claws, for $500,000. Now, a guy ran that for me about a month ago in dollars today, and that would be $23 million mm. if it was made today for Dan Issel mm. at that time, when you think about that a second. Yeah. But that, that's how good Issel was. And then also, uh, we, we went back to that, they also sold our point guard to the New York Nets for 150000 Teddy McClain, he was the best point guard defender in the league. Now, we lost those two guys. Then the next year, we lost in seven games in the semifinals to Denver. Um, at Denver, because they had home court advantage. And then they lost the championship, the last championship of the ABA to the Nets. So the Nets won it in 74, we won it in 75, they won it in 76. Then we had the merger. And you say, well, how good was the ABA? The reason why we had to merge was because we had all the best young players. You go back and see that first All-Star game that was played at Atlanta in 77, and 14 of the 24 guys were ABA guys. <laughs> now, when you look at that, the other side of it uh, was the fact that we were playing the NBA in exhibition games the last two years. Everybody, ABA would play you anywhere you wanted to play an exhibition game because we needed the money. We didn't have national television revenue. So we were 10-4 and four against the top NBA teams in exhibitions during those two years. Well, the Nets... The best teams, I always said this, the team with the best talent was always San Antonio. But for whatever reason, they'd get beat in the playoffs someplace. But that's how loaded the league was at that time. And uh, a great teaching thing for myself, Stan Albrecht was a great assistant. And, and then we had a terrific 10-man team that really played well together. Now, Hubie, I only have three more questions left for you here, but the next one involves something that you had just mentioned, which is the great young talent in the ABA. Um, that over the course of the next three decades, you would spend in the NBA with three franchises, the Hawks, the Knicks, and the Grizzlies, where you developed a reputation for being a virtuoso at developing young players. What is it about the psyche or I guess the excitement about teaching and working with young players that, that, that just really clicked for you? Well, I think this is a great, a great question by you because for me, uh, winning a championship and it will always be number one in your career. Uh, the highest level is getting into the Hall of Fame. But as a coach, it was winning the championship. But then doing what we did when we went to Atlanta, they hadn't been in the playoffs for five years, and we had the young Ted Turner brought the team halfway through the 
first season, cut the payroll back to 800000 And I said to him, there are seven guys in the league making 800000 <laughs> And you want 12 guys to make a total of 800000 Well, if you go and look at it, we were in the playoffs the very next year. And uh, uh, over that summer, we put together a, a very quick team, and it was the youngest team and the lowest payroll, but we pressed and trapped full court, three-quarter, half-court, uh, matchup zone. Uh, I always say this when you talk to coaches. When you develop your philosophy, never be afraid to be an innovator or a risk taker. As long as you can teach and you surround yourself with coaches who can teach, you can never put a bar on the level that young players can reach. And that's what we proved in Atlanta. Atlanta. Uh, Not only did we win 41, then like 46, then 50. We won a division in the third year, and we were still the youngest team and the lowest payroll, but we still pressed the track and fast break the entire game, 48 minutes. Everybody said we looked like a high school team, except for one thing, the results were there. And out of that, Dan Roundfield and Eddie Johnson and John Drew became all-star players. Now, the Memphis situation, when we took over that, they were already, as you know, the most wins they ever won was 23 in the first seven years, and they were already 0-8 when Jerry West called. And I was going to... He offered me the job. I almost fell off my chair. (laughs) But I was watching all of their games because my son, Brendan, was the advanced scout for Memphis. So I watched all their games on DirecTV. So I knew their team. It was a young team, but a lot of talent, but, you know, they just couldn't win. So we went there. They were 0-8. At the end of the year, we won 28 games. But the key was they were losing games by 11 points a game. Well, from the All-Star game to the end of the season, we never lost a game by more than eight points. Now, that's how you have to aim the game plan, the accountability, uh, the philosophy. Everything has to be uh, strong. Uh, There can't be any weak areas when you take over young teams like that. So we were lucky that that group responded to that type of technique because that's what we ran in Atlanta the same way. So... uh, that second year that we were there, we won 50 games. And uh, we were there were only six or seven teams that year that won 50. Now you say, well, was that all coaching? No. They just listen to who was on this team. And they never won more than 23 games. Al Gasol is 21 years old from Spain. Shane Battier, I, we, we, we made a trade for James Posey. Jason uh, Williams uh, was the point guard on that team. And then we made a trade at the end of the first year for Mike Miller. So just think of those five names. Yeah. Pat Riley picked up Battier, Posey, Jason Williams, Mike <laughs> Miller. They all have two rings. And then when Kyle Gasol got traded to the Lakers, right, he wounds up with two rings. So it wasn't that the talent wasn't there. It was young talent, but it was like a rough diamond. 
They needed direction. They needed accountability. They needed teaching. And they were able then to answer that themselves within that. And then they were all rewarded because Pat Riley at Miami picked those guys up. And when they won those championships, every one of those guys outside of Powell, you know, made a major contribution. So that to me is what you hope people will remember was that we did it with young teams and it didn't take three, four, or five years. Uh, They got there within that second year or the first year. And that to us is important as coaches and teachers. Wow. Now, Hubie, I want to just briefly touch on a part of your career that has actually lasted as long as the coaching, which is the broadcasting. Uh, those of us who have watched you have, be, you know, just your voice being the sound of the way basketball should be broken down. It's hard for me to imagine a time when that too was a challenge. But can you remember those early years? What the what the early years of broadcasting was like for you? Were there challenging moments, and were there moments when you thought that maybe maybe broadcasting wasn't in the cards because it looks so natural for you now? Well, it all came about because of clinics. See, I when I was in college, I would go out and recruit. I was the head of recruiting at Duke. So Chuck Daly was the assistant coach. I was the freshman coach. When I would go out and see the summer league, I would do camps and do lectures at camps. Then I was associated with the greatest camp in the history of this country, the five-star basketball camp for 40 years were the best players up and down the East Coast. Then it went to the uh, Midwest when Isaiah Thomas and Aguirre and all the guys from uh, Chicago and Detroit came to the camp. Then it even went to the Southwest where players would come to this camp uh, during the year. Now, that teaching, while I was an assistant coach, blossomed into uh, becoming a clinician for coaches. So when I was an assistant at Milwaukee, I was doing coaching clinics for coaches. I, not a lot, but I was breaking into that. So in Atlanta, uh, I was offered to go with US, USA. People forget that USA did uh, Thursday night basketball NBA doubleheaders, Major League Baseball doubleheaders, and then also uh, on Saturdays, the best college football games. Uh, they were they were really big before ESPN. So I get a phone call from a good friend of mine who was the radio announcer at the Milwaukee Bucks, Eddie Doucette. And he said, Yubi, listen, there's an opening uh, at USA, brother Bob. Uh, doing television, they'd like to talk to you. So I flew to New York, and a fellow by the name of Jim Zwick offered me a job, and I would work with Steve, not Steve Albert, not uh, Marv Albert, but Al Albert. We would do the first game Thursday night. Eddie Doucette and Steve Jones would do the second game on the West Coast. So that's how it started. I did it for a year, and then at the end of the year, CBS was doing the playoffs. They offered me part-time job to do the, so I did 
on three rounds in the playoffs. And then I was hired by the New York Knicks. So, uh, are you nervous? Of course, because you're, when you go behind the mic, one sentence can take you off the air in a heartbeat, especially on a national telecast. And now that the telecasts are going to 215 countries, well, now that is going worldwide now every night when you're on the big game. So uh, my approach was always, I'm going to do the games like I'm talking to my team on the bench mm. and, and, and then huddles because I want the people to understand why things are happening, not just what they see. You, they, they know what they saw, but they don't know why it happened or the trends in the game that are going on that they don't get an opportunity to know about. So that was my approach from day one. When I coached the Knicks, if whenever we didn't make the playoffs, CBS would have me do the playoffs. And then um, in 1987, uh, after coaching the Knicks for five years, I got into television full-time. I did like 120 games that year for Philadelphia 76ers, Detroit Pistons for the Bad Boys, uh, college basketball for CBS. And that's where I truly learned the television business. It's a four-man team uh, out in front. And that's the announcer, the analyst, the producer, and the director. We're the, we're the guys out in front, but you can't get there without great, great camera work and without that production team. So I've always felt I was still part of a team, and that's how we approach it, because the analyst is no bigger than the announcer or the producer or the director. Because bad television is when the analyst is talking and the pictures don't match what the analyst is talking about. Sure. So for me, this coming year will be my 30th year doing television on, on a full-time basis. Uh, first for USA, then CBS, uh, then Turner, and then ESPN and ABC, you know, on a national level. Um, and then, you know, 32 years of coaching, I've been very lucky that uh, I've been able to stay, you know, since 1973, when you think about it, in the game of basketball and in the, in, in the professional side of basketball. I've been very fortunate because then it allowed me to do clinics, which we did around the world for, you know, a number of years. Hubie, the whole thing is remarkable, which is why I want to end with this question. What does it mean for you to be working with the Hall of Fame at this stage in your life? My wife and I go to the Hall of Fame every year. Because in my wildest dreams, I never thought that we would be accepted into the honor of being a Hall of Fame member. When they call you and tell you months in advance that you are going to be in the Hall of Fame, you look back 
on your entire professional career and you see every person who opened up the door for you, whichever level, whether it was at the high school coaching, whether it was at the college, whether it was at the professional, somebody, and then the television, somebody opened up doors. Now you have to step through and you have to back up their confidence by producing. So when you stand on the stage, I was walked up by Jack Ramsey, and Jack and I did 25 countries with Bill Walton and Calvin Murphy selling the NBA for television rights and marketing, doing clinics all over the world. And to me, the honor that night of Jack Ramsey standing right behind me and then speaking of how we got there and then at the end being able to thank my father and my high school coach, Alibaba, who's still the greatest emotional night for me as a man for the men who helped me and then the people who opened up the doors. But the Hall of Fame is at a whole different level than anything else in the sporting world. He is one of the great teachers the game of basketball has ever seen. He is a 2005 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, an ABA champion with the 1975 Kentucky Colonels, a two-time NBA Coach of the Year, a two-time Sports Emmy nominee and a 2000 Kurt Gowdy Media Award winner. Hubie Brown, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was incredibly meaningful. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you, Kyle.